the prog edition. I'm really excited for this week's episode and I'll get to that in a minute. But first we need to thank Ted Furuhashi from Circles for being a guest last episode and he said to listen to Between Birth and Death by Sunk Lotto. Yeah, I'd never heard of Sunk Lotto before and he did say that they were touring. So after the interview, I was doing the Wall of Sound newsletter. If you're not subscribed, you should be because I'm hilarious. <laughs> and I saw that we actually interviewed one of the dudes from Sunk Lotto and they were talking about playing shows together again and some of them had already sold out. So I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I should actually go. Wouldn't that be a cool way to experience this band for the first time? So I literally bought a ticket and the Brisbane show sold out. So yeah, my first experience of Sunk Lotto was not the album, but it was them live. And I think that gave me a really, really interesting perspective because I feel like it's been so long since I've been able to do that. Not go to a gig, but go and see a band that I don't know. Because usually it's like, you know, all the bands on the lineup or maybe you don't know the supporting band. But but this time it was the other way around where I just didn't know the main band. And I think that was really cool. You know, you take in the energy and they were really, really good on stage. I would not have guessed that they hadn't played for like 15 years or whatever. And it was very Deftones-esque, just in the way like, I think it's like the stage presence and like if they, you know, the crooning and like the way they command attention because they were so captivating and so powerful. Quite a good band live. But the album itself, Between Birth and Death, I did listen to. And I think for me, it challenged what I think a prog album is. Because if I had heard this with no background information from Ted, I would just assume, yeah, that's like a rock album, like a heavy rock, alt rock kind of album. But I think hearing more about it and from someone else's perspective saying, well, this is prog because of these reasons and because of their backstory and because of the way they developed. Yeah, it's a totally different way of looking at progressive music, which is cool. Yeah, couldn't sit still for this one. I just went to the park and did a bit of a workout at the time. And it's, it is good for moving. It can be like very intense, high energy, hard hitting. I quite liked it, but I think I'd need to listen to it quite a few more times to understand more of the prog aspect and really fall in love with this album. I think there's the potential for me to fall in love with this album, but I'd have to give it some more goes. But I really did like the opening track, Five Years of Silence, along with Everything Every Way. I think that's the song I remember seeing live probably the most. I don't know if it's just very recognisable, but when I heard it in the album, I was like, oh, pretty sure they played this live. But otherwise... What a cool band. What a cool chat. I hope you checked out the YouTube version of Ted showing their new track, Sleepwalking, because that was an eye-opener for me. I've never been able to see that side of things before. People don't just randomly share it. Really, really cool. If you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. It's well worth it. And, you know, while you're on social media, you should look me up on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Educate Ebony. I post some stuff. You can interact with me. You know, no one ever tells me if they've actually listened to the album. Some people do, actually. I take that back. But if you do, if you follow along and you listen to an episode and you listen to the album then as well, comment, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. But I don't want to harp on too much. Let's get to the good stuff. Okay, for this episode of Educate Ebony, the prog edition, I would love to introduce Richard Chu. He is a pianist, lecturer and composer of great esteem, having received numerous commissions over his career. You can find his album, The Last of England, on his website which is linked in the episode description, and also on Spotify. He's taught music and drama at the University of South Australia and at the Elder Conservatorium of Music at the University of Adelaide. 
He's currently Director of the Arts Academy at Federation University in Ballarat. And you may be wondering, Ebony, how the heck do you know this man? It doesn't seem like we run in the same circles at all. But 10 years ago, young Ebony in her first year of study at the University of South Australia decided to pick an elective called Progressive Rock. And guess who was her lecturer? Rick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ebony. It's <laughs> great to see you again. <laughs> yes, you too. I, I do have to say, officially... I'm really glad this worked out and I'm surprised it's been 10 years. That's just perfect. But, you know, you were the first person that really introduced me to prog rock and the rest is history. But I remember like every single thing about that class, the assignments, loved them, the classroom, 9 to 12 on a Friday morning. Yeah, it really made an impact. So thank you so much. Oh, it was, it was really, it was a great time. And I think, you know, having it as an elective within the degree but also available to students from other areas of the university. It was really, it was a really, you know, timely thing to do. And it was a really terrific uh, thing to be doing. Yeah, surely you would have loved it uh, too. It's just like a, I know it's work, but it's also, that's a pretty fun hobby to just watch music videos and talk to a bunch of kids about this really cool genre. Yeah, because I think, I think the appreciation of music is overlooked. Do you know what I mean? I think that we we all kind of understand in a way that music's part of a lifestyle choice that we make. But I think to extend that and really listen critically to a type of music over a period of time really can open doors for you. And, you know, for me, this was a, a really great kind of music to choose because this, it's so diverse. And, and of course, you know, it's had a long impact really and, and you know, an influence in terms of other genres and we we may come on to that but yeah it definitely has how did you first get into prog rock it's a very broad question but yeah well no it's a, it's it's a really easy one to answer because i was very young i mean i was i was seven. Oh. so i didn't kind of consciously do it it's just that i had a, a primary school friend at the time whose mum was a hippie <laughs> and a really good violinist fantastic musician and I used to go around to his house and, um, and she had tubular bells by Mike Oldfield and she put it on and, I, and that changed my life. I mean, that's honestly why I became a musician because she put this thing on and, and I'd been, you know, by that stage I was, you know, I was starting to learn piano, but I, I had this kind of um, ability to be able to hear things and pretty much try and work them out you know, in a very basic way at that stage, but I could play from ear. So this thing just completely, it changed everything because it was, it sounded in, in a way quite like classical music, but it was rock music. And I thought, okay, well, there's a connection between the two. And, you know, my parents, you know, my mum listened to Joan Baez and, and Simon and Garfunkel and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, they, they were kind of, uh, but they were also very into classical music. So, you know, the first album I got, I think, was Beatles' Hard Days, and I, and I loved that, you know. But this was something completely different. It was all instrumental and just blew my mind, really. I thought from then on, that's what I want to do. I just want to be involved in that. So, and that just happened to be a progressive rock album. I mean, you know, you could call it all sorts of things, but it was, it was the thing that sort of lit the touch paper for me. Yeah, and I guess... For people who like the genre but haven't really delved too far into it, maybe just like surface level, and as someone who's taught about the genre, what would you say uh, like the key elements are that define prog rock? I'm going to ask you all the technical questions because you're the 
actual yeah. qualified person here. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I suppose, you know, I mean, if you recall, we, we kind of started the course with, with a discussion about Sergeant Pepper and how mm. the Beatles had changed so radically over the course of, I mean, you know, they're only really, you know, the, the band really was 10 years. You know, if you think about it, it's a 10-year period. They it? broke up in 1970. And oh. Sergeant Pepper is 1967, so it's it's a very short amount of time that they move from a hard day's night that we just sort of briefly touched on, which is you know just post their cabin days really, mm. uh, when they were becoming huge pop music to something that is much more than that, much deeper kind of storytelling, uh, much more sophisticated music, and. You know, Sgt. Pepper, I think, was a kind of prototype prog album. And so many of the people who subsequently went on to be, I don't know, classified as progressive rock, you know, list that as the kind of the beginning of what they were doing. I think the thing that in terms of what the music is about, it's about they were mostly really talented players. So they were people, a lot of people were taught classically and brought some of that element into the playing the songs were longer um there was a lot of instrumental development in the music a lot of unusual time signatures and sophisticated harmonies some really spaced out lyrics <laughs> as well so that you know it didn't have to make sense you know it wasn't really about love songs um some of them were but you know um i mean if you look at yes they're a classic example of lyrics that are really cosmic and yet they really work you know they're not kind of you can't work out what john anderson's really singing about but there's something really extraordinary about the way he sings it and yeah so that, i think that's probably what defined it and it wasn't a long period of time really i mean you're only looking at um i mean if you know if we come back to tubular bells it's 1973 it's the first album on virgin records the beginning of richard branson's sort of virgin empire if you like <laughs> Picked a good one. And the didn't first he? thing he did was was said, well, yeah, he did. You know. <laughs> but within four years, you know, you have the Sex Pistols signed up to Virgin. So Mike Oldfield is is kind of gone, and and you know he's still got an album deal with them. He's still got to deliver records, but they they're you know pushing never mind bollocks by the Sex, sex Pistols in 1977. That's so different. <laughs> so yeah, so it all changed very 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 quickly, and. Um, and then sort of went really out of favor. And, you know, as things do, they go out of fashion. But then they, they reemerge. And, you know, if we look at a lot of the, uh, the bands that are playing in the kind of metal genres, I mean, and there are many, a lot of them are influenced by progressive musicians of the 70s and would openly own up to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's just popped into my mind, but what do you think of the genre or subgenre gent? I think it's fantastic. I mean, I, I love it because, you know, as we, said before we came on air that you know my son uh is a, a metal guitarist and i've ended up going to a lot of festivals and i'm a big fan of my sugar and you know a lot of a lot of that music you know i oh, who else i'm in mastodon playing that kind of really it's it's phenomenally technical but it's still it's just really great music it's very visceral mm. yeah cool no i just wanted to ask but uh, let's get to the, the really good stuff. What is the one prog album that you think I need to hear? Well, I, the one I've chosen for us to kind of 
have a chat about is the Genesis album yes. from 1976, and it's called A Trick of the Tale. And I suppose I should say all of their work is really extraordinary in it. You know, there's a huge development in it. But I think I chose this one because, you know, it, well, you know, it was released on the 20th of February, 1976. So it's like 46 years ago, unbelievably. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much to the day and I suppose I should maybe start off by saying you well why why this album why this group yeah um, why now I mean if we were to look at that Genesis are playing now so they're on their their farewell tour they've been they were in Berlin quite recently they're going to actually wrap up that tour at the O2 Arena in London oh, at the end beautiful. of March and that's the end of it. That's the kind of end, the end of an era. So the remnants of that original band, so that's sort of Phil Collins, who we all know because he became a superstar, sort of singer-songwriter in his own right. Mike Rutherford and Tony Banks, you know, founder members of Genesis are playing now. And the other thing is that, you know, the, the original guitarist from, from Genesis or you know, the guitarist that joined shortly after they became sort of well-known guy called Steve Hackett is playing Genesis music in you know he's playing in Australia in May and June so it's really you know be well worth going to see his band because he's playing a lot of the sort of Peter Gabriel era Genesis music oh, and cool. you know there's a concert in um which I'm going to go to um so I've never actually seen him um in June so he's playing in Melbourne amazing so really worth looking up so that was the, the i suppose the reason for choosing it but, um, but then you've also i remember you speaking a lot about um their albums foxtrot and i think it was like a lamb lies down on broadway so why this one and not those ones well i mean they're, they're all rather wonderful but i think this one is particularly special because they had come to a kind of transition point so peter gabriel had decided that he was going to leave the band, which was a huge blow. And, you know, they'd just been touring The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is a double album, and it had this extraordinary sort of stage show that went with it. And they, they were just really beginning to get a big fan base. And, you know, it's a double concept album, you know, it's a typical 70s stuff, you know, with this, this very strange story that's attached to it. But, I mean, an amazing record, you know, amazing. And then the lead singer decides to leave. And that would be bad for any band. But I think for this band, it was really, really problematic because, you know, his personality and his theatrical stage presence had really given them, you know, well, they'd suddenly got onto the cover of NME, which was the big magazine in the UK. Yeah, huge. Uh, New Musical Express, you know. They suddenly hit the front page because he... He was doing this really, th you know, he was starting to dress up on stage. He was, he had this, wonder, this wonderful rapport with the audience and suddenly he's, he's not going to be there anymore. And what, they, what were they going to do? So the next album, that, well, the, the fact that they continued at all was pretty extraordinary. But it's, I think, you know, the fact that they came up with a really brilliant next album after that and what happened was that the drummer stepped out from behind the drums and decided that, you know, much, you know, he didn't want to. And this is Phil Collins. 
So this is the sort of, you know, this is the advent of Phil Collins as a lead singer. You know? Yeah. Um, he had no, no desire to do it at all, but they couldn't find a replacement that was able to sing it as well. And he was putting down guide vocals of, the, of you know, four people who were auditioning so they, they could have a go, you know. He was, he was just basically doing it and being like, mm, not what I'm looking for when he was the one. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. So they persuaded him to sort of step out and then not only record the lead vocals, but then there was the question of, okay, right, well, we've got to go on tour. You know, this is a big deal. And so, you know, he, he stepped into that role. And so within the band, within the family, this close-knit group of people, they were able to find the replacement, having auditioned, I think, many, many people, none of whom seem right. And this kind of brings us to now because, of course, Phil Collins, you know, has some health problems, as you, you might be aware. And, you know, he, he suffered nerve damage from various operations that he's had on his back and isn't able to drum anymore. So oh. he's not able to do, do that. So his son, Nick, is now playing drums on the Genesis tour, you know. So the whole thing's happened to get you know, from within the kind of family, really, um, you know, has has emerged this person who's able to kind of well replicate those drum parts to a degree in a level where it sounds like it should so um they've done this a few times now and it's it's really yeah it's really quite a, a lovely story really oh wow yeah i mean i just assumed you'd go for a peter gabriel written album i guess as well with genesis just because i don't know not that i've listened to much of um phil collins genesis era but just the way that Peter Gabriel writes and sings, it's just very, like you said, very like theatrical and which you wouldn't, I don't think you'd necessarily associate theatrics with prog. I think nowadays people associate it with like the whole shoegaze sort of genre. But back then they were really performers for sure, I guess. Yeah. And I think the, the material lent itself or well, he felt it lent itself to this kind of, well, I mean, you know, it is like theatre. You know, when you see their early shows, um, the ones that have come to us on film, particularly the Shepperton uh, live performance, which is amazing. You see him, I mean, you know, it's also quite funny, you know, of course, <laughs> the, the, there have been a number of, um, you know, you think of Spinal Tap in, in certain areas of it, you know, yeah. it's, it, it is quite amusing to look back on it. But at the time, nobody was doing that. And the songs, they're, they're stories. So they're almost like mini operas, if you like. So they lent themselves to that sort of theatrical presentation. Right. So did Phil Collins carry that on when he stepped up or he was like, I guess I'd better do it my way because you can't replace him? Uh, that's a brilliant question because I think he couldn't. He didn't want to, you know, so that they were all pretty unsure when Gabriel started to do that stuff. Yeah. I mean, because he, he didn't tell them. He just sort of turned <laughs> up in this sort of outlandish costume, uh, one of which include, you know, if we go back to Foxtrot, Mm. He had this fox's head made and then he, he wore his wife's red ball dress, you know, yeah. this, this ball. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of just showed up on stage and they didn't know who was going to do it. But suddenly they're on the cover of the music magazine next morning. So it worked. But Phil Collins isn't that kind of performer. And I think what he did was really interesting because he, he's sort of like an everyman, you know what I mean? He's like a, he stepped up and, and said, you know, I'm like a regular guy. And with a very very good rapport with the audience but I think he's like um he's also from from London so he has a kind of quite a strong London accent and uh you know he's from Chiswick I think so he was able to do something quite different with it which is 
almost like this sort of, yeah, a sort of everyman figure, you know, the guy next door. Just um, stepped up. <laughs> which, which, yeah, yeah, you know, this chap off the street who's telling you these, these stories. So he had a much more kind of um, colloquial sort of presence and was, in, you know, incredibly nervous about it. But went on, you know, I mean, when we know what happened next, you know, he has an extraordinary stellar solo career yeah. as a result of making that decision in a way. I feel like it could have gone very wrong because he was still behind the drum kit, right? And he was singing as yeah. well. So you've got what, three people or four people on stage, but no, there's no like central uh, front man at that point in time. So it's like, especially, I guess today you've got social media, which means that you can create a rapport without even seeing someone. But if they could only do that through a live show, it would have had to be lots of, I don't know, banter with the crowd or just a really good presence because there was no one focal point. So yeah, yeah. he might've just messed that up and it would have all gone downhill. Yes. Yeah. And I think he, he felt that they really went with it, that the crowd they had that they'd built up because his voice isn't unlike Gabriel's in a way, it's a slightly higher pitched voice. So he was able to cope with the high notes a little better. And, you know, it's a really great, great voice and it just sort of fits with the music so he'd also done some backing vocals on previous records so you know you hear him in some of the kind of key songs where he's backing up Peter Gabriel's vocal but yeah stepping out from behind the drums which is really what he was doing uh, is a big move and so they had to find a live drummer when they went on tour and Phil said well look I'm, I'm picking who that is because it's very complex and it needs to be a certain kind of drummer so they were lucky enough to get Bill Bruford for the subsequent live tours, who was with, you know, he was with King Crimson, he was with Yes for a while and was able to cope with the very kind of sophisticated things that Phil Collins was doing. And then, you know, they've got this extra aspect to the show, which is they've got two drum kits on stage with Phil drumming when he's not singing. So they had this extra kind of element to the music, which they were able to bring into it. Mm, yeah, that's really cool. Just on that with the whole technical aspect of the drumming as well, do you think that more musicians should start off training classically? Because I feel like a lot just go, you know, they pick up a guitar, they try and play their favourite album and then it just sort of grows from there. Yeah, there are lessons involved too, but I don't really get the vibe that many people train classically anymore. No, they don't. I mean, some do, but we may not be aware of it all the time. But I think that, no, it doesn't really matter. I think, um, you know, there's certain things that a classical training brings you, which is technique, you know, there's a particular kind of technique that's involved with it. I think being able to, to have a real sense of the geography of the instrument, right? So with something like the piano, I think I'm very glad that I had that chance to study that music because, you know, it stayed with me forever and, and all the hours of practice that went into it. You know, I was playing from the age of seven and then, you know, playing actually quite a lot every day. I mean, probably when I was 40 and 15, I was playing probably six hours a day. on what? Average, <laughs> Trying to fit that in because there's no other way to it, you know, to actually really become any good at classical music. You know, you can you get through certain fairly simple pieces, but once it gets more developed, you've just got to put in the work. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of work, you know, especially when you're trying to go to school and, you know, I was trying to skive off to play the piano. It wasn't, I didn't consider it to be work, really. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Much rather have been playing the piano all day long. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, back to a trick of the tale. Do you remember when it became 
a really important album to you? Like there was a time when you're like, oh yeah, this is cool, you know, breaking away from Peter Gabriel and, and branching out in this area. But when did you realise, oh, this is quite monumental for you? Well, it was a little bit later on because I first became aware of them because, uh, you know, I was born in 1966. So I'm a bit young to have heard this album when it came out and made any sense of it. So I first became aware of Genesis when they released Duke in 1980, which is a, you know, probably their last really progressive record. They were becoming more commercial at this point. And I absolutely loved it. So then I backtracked from that. And, you know, I heard the album Seconds Out, which is a double live album, which includes a lot of the material from this record. And I just thought that's amazing. And then I immersed myself in it. So I'd say I was probably a little older by that stage, probably 17, 18, by the time I really picked up on it. But I wanted to play like that. That's the thing. You know, for me, it was the music. I wanted to be able to write music like that. And I wanted to be able to play keyboards like that. So for me, it was a thing of, of looking into it and saying, all right, well, how do you do that? How do you create those sounds and, and put those chords together? And, you know, it, it's just brilliant, you know? Even I was listening to it yesterday and I just thought, oh, well, it still sounds great, you know? Yeah. And do you feel like, I mean, you know, back when you're younger and you don't know as much, you're like, oh, I can't imagine doing this, but I'm going to try. Is there anything you still feel like that today? Or you sort of feel like you've got things figured out? <laughs> Oh, no, absolutely not. No, but I mean, what, you know, you mentioned The Last of England, which is a piano record that I've made. Mm. Um, I was really, really touched. It really meant a lot to me because this chap came up to me when I did it in a recital oh, quite a while back and I played the whole thing. It's nearly an hour long, you know. Oh, and, beautiful. And I didn't think of it as being particularly prog at all, really. I wasn't going for that. But this chap came up to me and said, look, you know, you're, your playing really reminds me of Tony Banks. And of course, Tony Banks is the Genesis keyboard player. So I thought, you yeah, know, this, this person really knows their music because they've heard that. And I wasn't really going for it, but it's like, ah, oh, fantastic. So something of it has rubbed off in the music that I'm writing. And, I, you know, yeah, that's really, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> what a huge compliment. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the thing is, I, I always feel I've got loads to learn, you know. I mean, the music I'm writing now is quite different. and I always feel like I, if I'm going to play it live, I have to kind of learn it. You know, I have to treat it as if it's somebody else's music. So there are technical things in it that I'm still learning how to do. So I'm just sort of endlessly fascinated by that. So in a way, like I said before, it's not work for me. It's like trying to kind of get to that sound so that it's yeah. easy to produce. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember um, 10 years ago <laughs> in uni, we must have been all talking about tubular bells and just that constant loop that it's on that you never get bored of and it's just so good uh, and I remember you were trying to make uh, or compose your own version with that continuous loop did you ever achieve that if you remember at all yeah I think I've done versions of that I think in my own way and there are a few examples of it on that album that I've done but I think what's good about that particular riff is that it's the reason it doesn't become boring is it's not the same, you know. So basically it's in an unusual time signature for a start and it's a bit asymmetrical. So you never really feel like you completely know it. You know, you, you recognize it immediately, it starts, but it's got enough interest within it, even though it repeats for you not to get bored with it. And I think that was the key thing that he did there. And he was influenced by 
minimalist composers in America. So he was sort of listening to the music of Terry Riley and Steve Reich. And that's sort of what got him onto that sort of repeated pattern, but it doesn't quite repeat, you know, it's, it's, it's quite unusual. So, yeah, I mean, I've used that kind of technique a lot in my music and, you know, that definitely comes from Oldfield. Oh, so cool. I mean, and I don't think we're ever going to relive those days, but there was a lot going on in the 70s, like for this album to come out, for every other proggy album to be coming out in the 70s and maybe early, early 80s-ish. But like, why was it all so prevalent then? They were just all really tight-knit, what a community, and just went for it. Yes, I think they were. I think it was a culture, you know. I think there was a, there was a cultural thing going on, which was there were a lot of people who um, had really put a lot of time into playing their instruments and had a lot of imagination. And also, you know, recording techniques were very different back then. I mean, when you listen to this record, you've got to imagine that there's no Pro Tools. There's no, uh, you know, quick way to punch in and do this work. It's all very, very labor intensive. It's all cutting up tape. And, you know, there is a certain amount of overdubbing by this stage. And, you know, the techniques are improving. But it's still a lot of this would have been done in, you know, single or you know, they, they also don't have that much time in the studio. I mean, the thing is recorded in a, in a month, you know, so they're playing most of it live and then they're just doing overdubs on that. But the, the idea is that you can reproduce it, you know, so there's not this kind of, I think we've got such a privileged position now to be able to do these things so easily and create recordings that seem like they're perfect. But, you know, I prefer... The imperfections in these records, I think, are what make them what they are. Yeah, perfect. Well, back to the Genesis album. When I do go to listen to it, because I will, is there a certain aspect of the album that you love um, and maybe others like myself for the first time listening might overlook, like a certain time signature or riff or just a really cool moment? I think what I like about it is that it is really a really diverse record. So there are eight tracks some of them are quite long. I mean, none of them is under four and a half minutes. Right? <laughs> so, and, you know, there's a lot of instrumental development in it. The first track is called Dance on a Volcano, which gives you an idea of what they were going for. It's very powerful. And it became a, one of the, the most um, important live tracks for them. Uh, post this record, they played it, you know, right up into the 80s. There are about three or four tracks on this that they that were regular live favorites. So that says a lot for the record. It says a lot for the kind of energy of it. And, you know, it's also very, it's very detailed. It sounds much better than their previous records as well. You know, the production values are right up. So they recorded in this particularly good studio in London called Trident, where a lot of, you know, a lot of bands were working at the time. But, you know, the production values are very high for the time. And they've got a, a really terrific sound going by this stage it's it's really quite majestic so there's a lot of interest in the music a lot of um, as i say you know in instrumental solos both on guitar but particularly in the keyboards that are very prevalent and some wonderful storytelling going on it but they're also much gentler tracks so they follow dance on a volcano the the opening track which is really extraordinary um with this song called entangled which starts off sounding like um, 
little bit like uh, Simon and Garfunkel. It's a little bit like Scarborough Fair or something like that. You know, it's got that kind of folk feel to it, but it has this beautiful chorus. And yeah, it's really, really mesmerizing music. You know, you really can, there are moments where it's almost ambient and, and other moments where it just really demands your attention. It's a full on piece of quite heavy music. I mean, the next song's called Squonk, which is a strange <laughs> word. And we can maybe talk about that in a minute, but the you know that the drumming in that sounds like Led Zeppelin, you know it sounds like John Bonham. So it's a very it's really heavy. He was going for that, you know, he's absolutely going for that John Bonham sound, which was unlike anything else. Justly famous drummer, and he was using a particular kind of setup with the kit to get that massive sound that Zeppelin had. But something like Cashmere would be a good example of it, the kind of track that they were going for. So, you know, there's a lot of influences in it, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So for me, <laughs> when I'm listening, I don't think I'm very good at picking up influences. And, yeah, I guess I've been a music journalist for a while now, but I feel like many other people are like, oh, I can hear this in here and I can hear that. I'm like, I just hear cool music. Sounds great. <laughs> so when you say um, that track sounds like John Bonham, can you describe what like what it sounds like I don't think because I've never listened to I guess drummers and been like ah oh, that's you know so and so yeah well John, John Bonham was a very very powerful drummer and it's not just the strength it's the sound that he was able to get out of the kit he used a bigger bass drum than a lot of other musicians and thicker sticks so there was there were technical things that he was doing to get that sound and it was very influential. Other people tried to get it. But because Zeppelin were, you know, a four-piece, it was like a, you know, they, they really needed something very powerful in that engine room. And they called him the engine room. So he had that particular kind of sound. And if you think of Phil Collins, I mean, one of the most well-known things, one of the most obvious things is, you know, looking at um, In the Air Tonight um, and that drum sound. So he went on to try and create something like that of his own you know people talk about that that's the sound of the gated drums from in the air tonight it's become worldwide you know it's 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 a thing but it was a particular recording technique and and i think it comes from john bonham in terms of what he was going for so there's that element of it but also in terms of i mean if you look at the title song from the record which is a trick of a tale it's got this kind of um quite upbeat Paul McCartney sort of feel to it. Oh yeah, it really is. It's it's very like oh, if we could think of a Beatles song that is really like it, something like um, getting better all the time. You know what is it? You know, getting better from Sgt. Pepper. It's very much that kind of groove, and you know they're quite clearly going for something a little bit more commercial, but still slightly off kilter. So there's definitely Beatles influences in there. I'd say there's the Simon and Garfunkel influence. There's you know, Zeppelin. Also, the last track is an instrumental. It's called Los Endos, which sounds like a Spanish phrase, but isn't. You know, they've actually made up the words. Are you serious? It's to, yeah, yeah. It's supposed, so it's supposed to mean the end, but Los Endos <laughs> does not mean the end in Spanish, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so they've made up the words, but it sounds like a Santana track. They've got a, a Santana kind of feel going on there. Very, very involved percussion and a, you know very fast drum track 
very exciting music and it has an absolutely Latin American feel to it. So, you know, and that sounds to me more like um, the influence of, I mean, Santana, but also Weather Report, Jazz Rock, that kind of thing. So they were also able to go into that sort of area. And, you know, that's also down to Phil Collins, who had a side project throughout his time with Genesis, really called Brand X. And it's not, they're not a band that people know much about, generally speaking, but they were an instrumental jazz rock outfit. So he was playing that kind of music uh, when he wasn't with Genesis. And that's really worth looking up to, but you can absolutely hear the influence of Brand X on that track. Oh, awesome. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I feel silly asking this question because it's Genesis, but why do you think this album stands up in 2022 and in future years? I think because it's so musically strong. I think the writing is absolutely extraordinary. You know, they've just come out of a very pretty sophisticated album, double album with, with Peter Gabriel, the last one, in which, in fact, he only wrote the lyrics, really. You know, he wrote, you know, he contributed to some of the vocal lines on it, but really he was taking charge of the lyric writing. And so didn't really have much to do with the writing of the songs themselves. But this, you feel, is more of a collective effort. And, um, you know, Tony Banks is very, very strong on this. You know, he sort of becomes the leader here and takes over that role and says, okay, we are going to continue and we're going to come out really strong, you know, and Dance on a Volcano says everything you need to know because, you know, you hear the beginning of that and you think, okay, right, well, they're not going to fold. And they, you know, they thought about continuing as an instrumental band. I mean, this is the amazing thing. You think, okay, well, wow, how is that everything? But of course there were instrumental bands at the time. There were bands that were pretty much doing instrumental stuff like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, for example, you know, that the songs are fill-ins really for the instrumental stuff that they're doing. So it was a thing in the seventies that you could absolutely go that way, but they also sensed, I think that they could become a little bit more commercial. So the trick of a tale, they released it as a single and, um, you know, it didn't hit home, but I think it was a sort of precursor of things to come. They became progressively more commercial and less progressive if you like yeah <laughs> as, as they went on you know and then they start filling Wembley Stadium for two or three nights on the on the trot when we get into the 80s you know can't be mad at um, that they, no absolutely not I mean this is what amazes me about them because I mean if we go back to this thing about punk and and the way that was exploding at the time or about to that was a big reaction to progressive rock so you know you hear John Lydon Oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah. They, you know, John, John Lydon, Johnny Rotten was absolutely visceral in his attack of progressive rock. He thought it was completely pompous, overblown, and you know they were all public school boys, and you know it was it was appalling. You know, it was an absolute reaction. You know, he particularly hated Pink Floyd and Yes and and <laughs> and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, all that, all that kind of thing. The idea was to return to basics and really speak to the problems of the world, which of course they do, you know. Yeah. But Genesis somehow seem to kind of sail through this (laughs) relatively. I don't know, you know, they kind of go under the radar a bit, you know, but they don't get the kind of awful press that that Yes got and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Pink Floyd. They really got an absolute roasting in in the music press at the time. And as things changed, you know, and, and of course their fans stuck with them but, and sort of weathered it. But Genesis seemed to just sort of continue, you know, quite quietly in the background there. And 
they didn't seem to get that kind of roasting, you know. <laughs> That's so weird. I had no idea. Was it sort of like a, you know, punk was the public school boys and then prog was like the private school? Yes. Classical There was classes. a lot of that. There was a lot of, there was a lot of class in it. Right. And they were right. You know, I mean, all of the original Genesis lineup, they all met at a very posh school called Charterhouse, which is in Godalming in Surrey. You know, they, <laughs> they were where people get basically, you know, even now sort of trained to sort of enter the civil service. You know, it's a very kind of elite sort of world, which leads to Eton and Oxford and Cambridge. And that's the kind of natural progression for a lot of people still who, who go to those schools. I mean, they're much more diverse now, but there's this class thing going on. And I think that the Sex Pistols and bands like them were an absolute reaction to that. Ooh, that just doesn't happen these days, I don't think. Not at all. I think everyone's a lot more not, open. Not in the same way. Yeah. No, not in the same way. I think it was very prevalent then because, you know, of, of the kind of notion of the conservative government, that's still very strong, of course, you know, that notion of public school within the conservative government and parliament and the House of Lords and all of that, you know, that it's very strong in it still. But, yeah, I don't think, I, I don't feel it here for, for in the same kind of way at all. No. Well, when I go to put this album on, what are my listening notes? Should I be doing anything in a certain mind frame, somewhere scenic? I don't know. What do you, what do you think? What do you recommend? I think somewhere where you can really enjoy, I think a good glass of wine and a, a, nice, a nice meal would be a good way to enjoy it and just settle into the storytelling because it's, it's really fantastic. And, you know, there are tracks I haven't really mentioned, like Madman Moon, which is one of them. Um, which is virtually all keyboards and you know it it sort of takes off in the middle but it's it's absolutely brilliant you know well one of the reasons I chose this was a friend of mine I had a band at school (laughs) (laughs) yeah when I was about 16 and I haven't seen the guitarist who I used to write with for well nearly 40 years right so it's a long time and he just got in touch with me and he's an environmental biologist he's a professor you know, um, working in the UK. And um, he got in touch with me recently on, you know, he just found my website. And, and what he said was, I, I remember when we were at your house and you were playing Madman Moon from Trick of the Tail. And I thought, oh, wow, okay. You know, so we have this connection over many, many years. And this would be, you know, you'll, you'll have a lot of people saying the same thing. I know that there are a lot of people who have connected over this music. It's meant a lot to them. And I think, as we all do, you know, we have soundtracks to our lives, right? But these records, I think, are really something they kind of remind me of a time, but also they've stood the test of time in certain important ways. So I'd say just enjoy the storytelling. There's some really lovely moments on it. Phil Collins sort of emerging as this sort of artful dodger character in this song called Robbery, Assault and Battery, which sounds very violent but it's a it's a story of a of, of a kind of bank robbery that go, doesn't go to plan and and he plays all the characters within it so that's an element of the gabriel genesis still existing but he does it again in a very much more colloquial cockney sort of way you know he's sort of like a cockney storyteller think alfie solomon's in peaky blinders or something oh, like that cool. you know, you start yeah. to get to the kind of character that we're talking about you know something dickensian about it as well so if you look at the cover of the record it's it's really unusual you know it's like a series of sepia drawings from a charles dickens book or something which gives you a 
panoply of these characters that are represented in the songs. And funnily enough, was designed by the same company that had done The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which looks completely different. So Hypnosis is the company, and they, they did a lot of covers at the time, but they were more known for their sort of angular photographic kind of design, quite cool design elements. You know, they designed Dark Side of the Moon, things like that. So, oh, you know, amazing. Which is an iconic album cover, right? Yeah, yeah, so, it definitely um, is. It does feel to me, just from like what you're describing, very much of a, the chapter isn't quite closing, but it's just like, what's the word? Not revamp. Yeah, I no, I think, no, me. I think it is a revamp. I think they're re- reinventing themselves. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think they're really trying to maintain the best of what they've done up until that point. Mm. I nice think you can see elements. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, they, you know, it's only a matter of a few albums before they get to Abacab and, and beyond, where they're very much more of a kind of mainstream rock act. And, you know, they're appearing on Top of the Pops, which is the program that we had in the UK. I remember it now, you know, it started off with um, the theme music was A Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin. It was the riff from that. And that was on, a, I think it was on a Thursday night's. But I remember seeing Genesis on that, you know, for the first time doing, you know, Turn It On Again, which was their first single that really, really got anywhere. And, you know, they became a really mainstream act. So, you know, this is, a, I think, an important step on that, on that road. You know. I agree. I'm excited to listen to it. Uh, do you have anything more to add about this album before we wrap it up? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think what, what I would say is that they if we're talking about classical music, something that they do do is they, and they'd started to do this really from this album onwards, but they start to bring material back. You know, the way that classical symphonies work where, you know, you'll get to hear these themes that kind of come back and they morph and they transform, you know, and in a way that's what holds these big chunks of time together. If you've got a symphony that's like 20 or 30 minutes long or whatever, or longer than that. Now, how do you hold that together? Well, you've got to kind of do this thing which is called thematic reminiscence when we're talking musical terms. But they do that in Los Santos. They bring back a whole bunch of tunes that they've worked with in various songs and they string them together into this long instrumental. And you'll hear elements of Dance in a Volcano and Squonk and various other things. You know, there's a song that they didn't end up putting on the album called It's Yourself, which they draw from. So they're thinking as classical musicians would in terms of form. And that's how these songs hold together. You know, you've got quite long songs, some of these, you know, seven or eight minutes, and yet they seem to hold your attention and you want to stay with it. You want to stay with the narrative. So they're very good at that. And it's an antidote to the kind of three minute hit. It's something a little bit more considered and, more of a story and more of a sense of development within it. And that's what I love about it all. Oh, I love it. Well, (laughs) there we have it. The one prog album that Richard Chu thinks that you and I should listen to is A Trick of the Tale by Genesis. Rick, thank you so much for your wisdom. I can't wait to listen to it from your point of view. Thanks, Ebony. It's been great to speak with you. How are you? (laughs) Oh, it's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. It's been a long time. Wow, it's fantastic. (laughs) 
I was literally just thinking it's really weird to, oh, it's really nice and a bit weird to like revisit such an old chapter, you know, of your life back. Yeah. It's literally been 10 years. I looked it up. Wow. Yeah. Uh, amazing. I'm so excited. You know. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's, it's, it's really great and, you know, really terrific to see what you've been doing and, you know, particularly in this space. I mean, it's just great that something, you know, some connection that we had back then has, has meant something to you and gone forward. I mean, you know, 